0: That's where we're going to start. <clears throat> it's always a surprise. Luke 24. Um, today, uh, just so you know where we're going, so no surprises in that. There's a, uh, this is a uh, topical message. I'm not going to preach from Genesis this morning. We will be going to Genesis uh, for a couple things, but um, I have a, a different uh, thing here. To go after today. So we're going to begin in Luke chapter 24. And let's go to verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking, And discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? "...toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures?" And John chapter 5, verse 39... John chapter 5, verse 39. This is Jesus condemning the false teachers of the day, but the point he makes here is very, very important for this morning for us to get. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for Pacific Coast Bible Church, Lord, and the the faithfulness of this church family. I thank you, Lord God, that through many difficulties and trials and joys and hardships for 25 years this coming week, Lord, you have graciously and kindly preserved a people in this local church. And Lord, I believe you'll continue that. And I look forward to serve in the midst of this body. I pray for your blessing on the future, Lord. Come hardships and joys, regardless, we would glorify the Savior and be salt and light in this place. For now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that this would, uh, it would have clarity in our minds and would benefit us as your children who love you, Father, and want to walk in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Sixty-six books, three languages, over 40 different authors, written over a large, large group of years. Um, You guys know I've been a believer and been in the church, Um, I've been in the church my whole life, and I've heard many times people try to sum up the Bible in one clear statement or one little phrase or some cutesy way of trying to get it across so we can say it. I've heard people say the Bible is a love letter. Um, I've heard people say that the Bible is God's instruction manual, um, basic instruction before leaving earth, Bible. Bible. I've heard many different explanations and little sentences to try to get across what the Bible is about. And yet, none of those really scratch the itch. None of those really answer what the Bible actually says about itself and what is going on from page to page to page, from leather to leather. And when I started studying my Bible for reals with deep intent of wanting to know, I thought I need to go after each book of the Bible. I need to know Genesis, I need to know uh, Exodus, I need to know Leviticus, I need to know Romans, I need to know 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and so I pursued my understanding of each book of the Bible, based on the different authors, based on the context in which it is written. This is what we call exegesis, or hermeneutics. These are Bible study methods to seek to understand the whole Bible. But I was missing a piece, and in my opinion, I was missing one of the more important pieces, and that is the unity of the entire Bible. Getting the bits and pieces, it's kind of like a puzzle, and I was having I was I had this box and I had all these pieces I was putting in the box that I knew about my Bible. But I hadn't put the pieces together to see the real clear picture of the unity of scripture. And God in His grace has brought numerous people into my life who have shined lights and helped me understand more of the unity of Scripture. The Bible is, yes, 66 books and yet one book. Over 40 different authors and yet inspired by God one particular author. Many different events, many different bits and pieces and yet one massive storyline from page to page to page, moving towards one storyline. The Bible is a unit. It is not a bunch of different books. Now, that gets a little difficult when we go back and we read our Old Testament, and we read the first 39 books of our Bible, and we start to seek to understand And we hear about the nation of Israel, we read about all the different kings, and as one person told me one time, I don't know if we're talking about a city or a person at some points in my reading of my Old Testament. Struggling through it, but seeking to understand how it works, the unity of the whole Bible. I said this uh, probably over a year ago, but I want to restate this. The fact is, the New Testament authors are the inspired interpreters of the Old Testament. The New Testament authors are the inspired interpreters of the Old Testament. As we walk through the New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they begin explaining what is being said in the Old Testament and what was God's intent from the very beginning. There's hints throughout the Old Testament that give us a glimpse that God has an even greater plan but it's said specifically in the New Testament. And so this morning, I want to talk about biblical typology, and then I want to show you some of the biblical typology in Noah and the ark. That's my my desire this morning, because each week, you've probably picked up that when I seek to apply or kind of conclude the message as we're walking through Noah and the ark, I have landed on a spiritual reality that we might say a New Testament reality that applies to us. And that's on purpose. That's not a mistake, and that's not me forcing it on the text. I believe that is the authority, uh, the authority to do that is from the Lord Jesus and from the apostles of the New Testament. So what's typology? Really quick, just for kicks, if you have heard of typology, biblical typology, would you raise your hand? If you haven't, that's fine because you're about to. Um, Biblical typology is very simple. Let me explain. There's two pieces to it, okay? There is uh, the type and the antitype. The type is any Old Testament person, place, thing, or occurrence that prefigures a New Testament reality. An Old Testament person, place, thing, or occurrence that prefigures a New Testament reality. The Old Testament piece is a real thing that really existed. So, I have to get this out clear because there are some folks who will take the, the Old Testament scriptures and they will seek to interpret it allegorically. When they're interpreting it allegorically, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, the Old Testament is actually not history, there's actually no real facts and nothing that really happened back there, but it's a neat little made-up narrative story that you can take and apply in different ways, but not real history. And God has spiritual, uh, God has spiritual attachments to every little bit and piece of the entire Old Testament. So I heard one interpretation where um, Nehemiah, as he went to go rebuild the wall around, around Israel, as he rebuilt that wall... Uh, that wall is actually the, the wall of the, the, what was it? I think it was the wall of the Holy Spirit or something like that, and that was the intent. Uh, I just don't see that. I see no authority to get to do that as you look back there. That is an allegorical interpretation, and there are many people throughout church history who have interpreted the Bible this way. They've gone back to the Old Testament, read a story, and said, okay, so that's not history, and that's not real, that's not literal, so what does it mean? And then they run amuck with it. Typology is where you say, and you believe, this is actual, literal history, something that took place in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, but there is a divine intention where God has that Old Testament person, place, thing to prefigure a spiritual reality in the New Testament. So a person, Melchizedek, we're told that Jesus comes as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a real priest, a real person back in the Old Testament, and this individual was prefiguring Christ, giving us an idea, of pointing us towards Christ. The tabernacle. Think about the tabernacle. Um, Back when Moses was with Israel and they're traveling and they put up this tent and this is the place where they will go to meet the Lord, right? The tabernacle is where, if you want to know where God is, just go over to the tabernacle and then eventually the temple that that Solomon built. You go there. That's where you go to see God. And then John says that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, we are told that if you want to know the Lord, you want to see the Lord, you go to a person, Jesus Christ. Where Jesus tells the woman at the well, you don't go to this mountain or this mountain to worship, but we worship. The, we, God is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. We're told that the rock in the wilderness was Christ. That one is a tricky one when the New Testament makes that statement. The event of the Passover, this concept of the blood of the lamb that covers the people as the angel of death is going through and destroying all the firstborn, that blood is over the doorpost, and so they celebrate that throughout the rest of the lives of Israel. And then we come to the Lord Jesus, and there at the Passover table, he institutes the Lord's Supper and shows that he is actually the Passover lamb. The book of typology, the the book that opens up much of this, is the book of Hebrews. Now, you find it throughout the other parts of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul, Peter, they'll take those Old Testament truths, those Old Testament realities, person, place, or thing, and then apply it to a spiritual reality, applying it to Christ. But Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, whoever that author was is the one who gives us the clearest understanding of much of this. As he looks at the priesthood, as he looks at the kings of Israel, as he looks at the prophets of Israel, he keeps saying, but something better has come, but something better has come, but something better has come, showing that those were there to lead and point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Another example of this would be the law. The law was given to God's people to reveal to them the sinfulness of themselves, not for them to be holy by keeping the law. Why? Because they were fully incapable of keeping the law. The law was actually a schoolmaster, somebody who is leading them to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus, in his ministry, constantly directs attention to the law. Because he was leading people to the conclusion, you are a lawbreaker and you are incapable of saving yourself, you have no righteousness, you must cling to a foreign righteousness, namely, Jesus. And so we have Melchizedek, the tabernacle, the rock in the wilderness, the Passover, the prophet, the priest, the king. Beloved, that Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, when you study it, and you see these physical pieces of worship over and over and over again, remember That wasn't where it was supposed to end. There's a divine intention in God to point to the Lord Jesus Christ through those um, objects, those people, those places of the Old Testament. Did you notice in Luke 24 that I, I, I make reference to the, the authority of the New Testament authors. But I'll start first and foremost in Luke 24. Jesus specifically says, he takes those two on the road to Emmaus, and he says, he explained to them everything, beginning with Moses and the prophets, the things concerning himself. And if you watch the ministry of Jesus, this is a great study, a side study if you ever want to do this. As you walk through the gospel narratives and you look through the ministry of the Lord Jesus, you will see he is continually searching and teaching the Old Testament scriptures and the aha moment of his teaching ends up with it pointing to himself. Well, why would we be caught off guard? Because then we come to the apostles in the New Testament and they teach the exact same way Jesus does. Your Bible is Christocentric. Your Bible is centered on the person of the Lord Jesus. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of Abraham, the seed of David, all the way down to the actual seed uh, of Mary, and we see the Lord Jesus born. So those are the types in the Old Testament. The antitype, anta means. Um, rather than, so not against, not like anti in the sense of it's against it, but rather than, it's pointing to, it's taking the place of. The New Testament reality that the Old Testament portion pointed to. The type is inferior to the antitype. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's take the tabernacle. And by the way, Just This is a point of application that I think we should have somewhat clear in our mind. At times, have you made reference to this building as the church? Well, shame on you. I have too. (laughs) We do that all the time. I'll meet you at the church. I'll meet you at the church. Let's go to the church. I'm going to paint the church. Biblically, that statement sounds ridiculous to say I'm going to paint the church because that would mean you would all stand straight up and I would come with a spray paint can and paint you. The church, biblically speaking, is a group of people, not a building. You will never find a building referred to as the church in your Bible. You are the church, beloved. So when we gather, we're going to church. This building, though, is a gift of the Lord, a special place that we as a church have designated to meet. This is not the church. You are the church. And Jesus is the head of us as the church. In the Old Testament, they were going to go to the tabernacle. They were going to go there and gather for worship. That's where the Lord was. That's where he would meet. And there was nothing wrong with that. That was God's design. That was his plan and purpose at that time. That no longer exists because we have Christ. Now, let me ask you this. This is what I mean by it's inferior. The type in the Old Testament is inferior to the antitype in the New Testament, would you ever want to re- do away with your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus and say we all have to go to a physical locality to go and worship him? So you're on the beach, you can't meet with him. You're not at Pacific Coast Bible Church, this building. You come here. You, see, you, you would never go from Christ back to the type that was leading to Christ. The illustration I've used since day one, is that picture of the, the yard sale sign, and you go to the yard sale sign, and you see where the yard sale, and then you go back to the sign, and you hang out by the sign. And people say, what are you doing? Why I found a yard sale sign. Why? The sign's just simply there to direct you to the yard sale. I know, but I love the sign. <laughs> I want to stay with the sign. The sign makes me happy. It makes me feel good about myself. I just want to stay beside the sign. But that's not that's never the intention of the sign. So when I see people try to go back to ceremonial laws, you should not eat this, you should eat that, you should live like this, you should not live like that, and they want to come and force the Old Testament, some of those laws on believers, you have to worship on this particular day and not this other day, you're officially standing by the yard sale sign. And you have missed the divine intention of the type directing to the antitype. The physical pointing to the spiritual, the temporary pointing to the eternal. The antitype is the end game. Once you have the antitype, you don't return to the type. By the way, the book of Hebrews. I remember John teaching this years ago at our men's Bible study. This concept of the desire for the Israelites, the Jews at that time, wanting to slip back into Judaism. The same thing we saw in Galatians. When Paul says, oh, you foolish Galatians who bewitched you, why would you want to go back to law-keeping when you have Jesus? He, he's just, he's pulling his hair out, thinking about what is taking place, place there in Galatia, where they're saying, yes, the yard sale is glorious, but I miss the Sign. And they want to go back to the, dark, the, the, the necessity of circumcision, and the necessity of law-keeping, and they want to mingle it with Jesus. And Paul says, you mingle it with Jesus, you don't get Jesus. You don't mix the antitype and the type. The type's directing to the antitype. Cling to the antitype. Cling to Christ. That was the whole point in the, in, at the beginning. The type is the shadow to the antitype, which is the substance. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come But the substance belongs to Christ. The idea is you're walking out on the beach, and there's your shadow, and my little little Benji starts to run to come and give me a hug, and he reaches for that shadow, falls on the sand, and missed it because he didn't get the substance, he got the shadow. And so the substance is Jesus. Once you have Christ, the Old Testament types are there to continually direct you to him, not to go back to them. Now, let me buzz through this really fast, and then we'll, we'll go and look at Noah. Three tiers, or three levels, of interpreting typology. So, just three levels, okay? Really quick, number one would be where it's clearly explained in the, in the New Testament, This would be where you're reading in in your Bible in the New Testament, and the New Testament author specifically gives you the the type in the Old Testament and then says, this points to this. Um, What I have listed here would be the, the, the priesthood in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews specifically, and the Apostle Paul in other books, specifically point to the priesthood and say, now we are a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, the priests were the ones who had access to God. Now we all have access to God through Jesus Christ. We call this the priesthood of the believer. So now every believer has this because of what the Hebrew calls the great high priest, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you read through the Old Testament and you see a priest, a priest, a priest, these are the people who are speaking on behalf of the people to the Lord that has been pointing the whole time to direct attention to Jesus Christ. This is, why, this is why, beloved, I don't believe in any way, shape, or form where there is a priestly nature of any man in this life. I am not a priest in this sense. Um, the Bible does not say pastors are a kingdom of priests. It says the church are a kingdom of priests. I do not confess my sin to any man because I can't get to God on my own. Now, I confess my sin to man. Confess your sins one to another, the Bible says. But I don't have to confess to man to get to God. I confess to Christ who gets me to God. Does that make sense? So, So no longer is there necessity for a priest because we have the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so when I hear of other groups and people that are saying you have to go to the priest to confess your sin or you have to go to this person to get to God, balderdash. That's not true at all, whatsoever. If that's true, Jesus died in vain. You don't go to a man to get to God. You go to God to get to God in the person of Jesus Christ. So that would be clearly explained in the New Testament as he makes that connection. Next one would be a blatant, obvious explanation where you see the Old Testament pointing so much to New Testament realities. It is borderline impossible for you to say that's not what it's there for, and yet you don't have a specific New Testament author connecting the dots for you. Case in point, when, when Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, he's going to sacrifice his son, and there happens to be another ram caught in the thicket who then becomes the substitutionary atonement sacrifice for Isaac. But before that, you have Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him before me. And as you you walk down two columns of the type and the antitype, I don't know how you'd go through that passage without seeing the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. The third tier is where life gets a little tricky for us as believers and we have to have grace for one another, and that is very possibly pointing to a New Testament reality, but be very careful. And the reason I say that is you don't want to put words in the mouth of God that may not be there. So you got the priesthood, the sacrifice of Isaac. Here I would say the likeness in the life of Joseph to the life of the Lord Jesus I think you could certainly and let me say, I plan on pointing to Jesus from the life of Joseph as we get to that portion of Genesis, but no New Testament author makes that connection, and it's not as blatantly obvious as some Old Testament portions. So be careful, but as you work through these tiers of typology, these are the three that were kind of there are guidelines that are helping us understand the Old Testament Scriptures. The last one, I know I said three. I have four because the fourth one really isn't part of the three. And that is the New Testament theology being forced into the Old Testament portion that is highly questionable. What it, so that this would be where somebody has a New Testament truth deep on their heart, and they go back to the Old Testament, and they do everything they can to shove the New Testament theology into a text that it just does not fit in the Old Testament. And say, well, obviously that applies to that. And you're going, well, but contextually, I just don't see that anywhere in the text and I don't see any validity to attach that to that. Let me give you a case in point. And you may differ with me on this and that's fine. I'm not worried about that. You shouldn't be worried about it either. Um, When Rahab put the scarlet thread or whatever, the, the scarf out of her window so that way she was not hurt, Some folks say there, it points right to the blood of Jesus because it was a scarlet thread. I think think you're pushing it. Now, if I go to heaven and the Lord says, it was. Great! (laughs) I I got no argument at all. Praise God that, that it was. I missed it. I'm just saying I want to be careful reading a New Testament truth back into the Old Testament and kind of shoving it into that text. So, quick word of caution, typology can lead one down a very bad path if not checked and carefully done. Never push an antitype beyond its limits, that are set by the text. Typology is not the same as allegorical interpretation. Seek to be very sensible in connecting Old Testament and New Testament thoughts. And finally, we never want to wrongly attribute something to God's Word that doesn't exist by His design. Now, as I've been teaching through Genesis, and we've been walking through this together, I will say... From my perspective, I have seen more Jesus in the story of Noah and the ark than I have ever before. I will say that I do not have a New Testament author that specifically connects every one of these dots, but there's certainly much New Testament ink spent connecting the Old Testament, specifically Noah and the ark, to an application of the New Testament believers. We'll look at some of those. But just think about this with me. You guys have been with me through these weeks in the book of Of Genesis, and you've you've listened carefully, I'm sure, and and you've heard what's taking place here. Number one, the rescue of Noah in the ark is a God-initiated salvation plan, not a Noah-initiated salvation plan. God, in his sovereignty, selected a plan to accomplish this great task. It is God-initiated. We love him because he first loved us. Noah did not say, God, I got an idea. I had a dream about a boat last night, and I think think we can do it this way. Rather, the Lord goes to Noah and initiates that. Much in the exact same way, the salvation that he has provided for us through the Lord Jesus Christ is a God-initiated salvation plan. Number two, and this is connected to that, it is always the pursuit of God after man. The scripture says, no man seeks after God. It says that in the Psalms, quoted again in Romans chapter 3. God seeks after man. God sought after Noah. Attached with that, God's covenant established by grace. There's nothing in the text that says God has to rescue Noah and his family. There's nothing theologically that you could argue that God owes Noah grace. And I just, again, step into this category of New Testament. There is nothing you could say or do to force the hand of God to give you grace. If then, it would not be grace, because it's undeserved favor. Next is God's salvation for Noah and his family is provided by God on God's terms. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation for you and I, are established on God's terms. He is the one who says how we will be made righteous. How many times have you heard somebody in your lifetime make the statement, there's many ways to God? There's lots of ways to God. The Bible says, no, there's one way to God. There is one way to him through the Lord Jesus Christ, sola, alone. God's terms, his plan, perfect righteousness or damnation. Since you have no perfect righteousness, I will provide a way of perfect righteousness through the Lord Jesus. Just in the same way he comes to Noah and tells Noah, and it's amazing to me, the specifics of the measurements of the boat. Or God could have simply said, make a big boat that will hold so many animals and so many people. Rather, throughout the thing, the, the, um, the logistics and the specifics of God's relationship to Noah are astounding to me. How careful the Lord is to explain this covenant that he has with Noah. As Noah prepares for the wrath of God, he's called to herald the message. Now, I think it's just a very easy understanding. Beloved, this is the exact same application to you and I. The wrath of God is coming, and he calls you and I to be heralds of the message. Peter says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. The word ark, or the ark, had one specific door, and I'll give you just John chapter 10, verse 9. There was one door to the ark, where everybody could go in the lord jesus on purpose standing before everybody says i am the door not a door the world is so much wanting to hear us say he's a no he's the door of salvation, There is one way into the ark. There's one way into a place that will preserve you and take care of you through the wrath of God. There is one way to preserve us and save us from the wrath of God, the door of the ark, Jesus Christ, the door. Now, here's another one that I had no idea. I did not know this. I never heard this before. When it says to go and... Put pitch all outside and inside of the ark. Another another um, way of saying it, it could be said, pitch it inside and out. The Hebrew word that's being used here is kafir, and I'm sure that's exactly how it's pronounced. You know what it means? To cover. Seventy times in the Old Testament this word is used to make atonement. So hold on a second. To pitch. This Hebrew word means to cover. Seventy times to make atonement. The idea of a covering. A protective covering. An atonement. And so they are in the ship under a covering protected from the wrath of God because of the grace of God. It doesn't take me much to step into the New Testament from that and see this directing me to the salvation, the ultimate salvation in Jesus. So the ark is roughly 450 feet long, 43 feet high, covered in pitch, Roughly a hundred years of labor that Noah took to build this because God, in his grace, saved Noah from his own wrath. God's justice, God's love, God's mercy, all in the same moment, physically, in the Old Testament, with Noah and the ark, God's grace, God's justice, and God's love, spiritually In 2020, when you die, you will never, ever, ever, if you're in Christ, you will never endure the wrath of God. You will be covered. You will be protected. You will be preserved through the wrath of God. Noah and his family were covered. They were protected because of a vessel of mercy and carried through the wrath of God by the grace of God. The physical salvation of Noah should draw us to the spiritual salvation in Jesus. If you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We looked at this last week, but just for for a refresh. 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes directly from Noah to us without skipping a beat. Verse 4, They will say, where is the promise of His coming, the Lord's coming? The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, This return of the Lord Jesus to this earth, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, went directly from the day of wrath in the life of Noah to the day of wrath in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am convinced because of the teaching of the Lord Jesus, the teaching of Peter here, the teaching of the Apostle Paul and because Jesus said all the Old Testament is directing attention to me, as you read and study Noah and the Ark, you've missed a huge piece, if not the entire piece, if it does not direct you to Christ. The point of the study of Noah and the Ark is not to walk away saying, man, Noah's a neat guy. It is to walk away saying, I am amazed that God would preserve them, but I am even even way, way more amazed that he would preserve me, not just physically, but to actually rescue my soul by the provision of his Son. It is God's marvelous design to show the glory of Jesus in God's perfect plan for redemption. This study will profoundly mature us as students of the Word. And let me close with this. This study of typology and seeing Christ in your Old Testament is a safeguard for us against what is termed the Galatian heresy. We were never intended to worship in forms and shadows, but rather to glory in Christ. The Galatian heresy was found in a group of Christians leaving the sufficiency of the substance to go back to the shadow. Anytime someone tries to convince you that you need to mingle Old Testament ceremonies or Sabbath laws along with the work of Jesus, you have officially denied the work of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the Old Testament has a far greater intent than to simply cause us to glory in the Bible heroes. It is to glory in the marvelous God of the entire plan of redemption and to lead us to be in awe and amazement of the person and work of Jesus. So, Genesis chapter 8 next week. Um, We'll jump back into our study of Genesis, looking for Christ. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the